astronomy. I knew I wanted to be an astronomer. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 9th of March 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy. And this week our special guest is Dr. Angel Lopez Sanchez. Originally from Cordoba in Spain, Ankel is at the Australian Astronomical Observatory and Department of Physics and Astronomy of Macquarie University, Sydney. He researches galaxies with star formation activity and even the features of very massive Wolf-Rayet stars are detected sometimes. In each episode... We'll have a news roundup. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. It is a great pleasure today to speak with Dr. Angel Lopez Sanchez, who is originally from the beautiful city of Cordoba in Spain. Angel, please tell us about your life as a kid in Cordoba. How dark were the skies? And tell us how you developed a passion for science and for astronomy. Well, I'm from this city from the south of Spain, from, from Cordoba. And it was early 80s. It was actually a pressure to look at the sky because we didn't have the problem of the light pollution. Yes. That is nowadays a very bad thing around the world. And it is really a problem not only because we are losing the stars, but also because it, there are many health issues related to the way that not the, the, the illumination is not properly use for what should be using. Anyway, I, I'm moving from what you asked me, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Uh, what, what I wanted to say it is that I could even see the Milky Way from the, from the city. Yes. And, and the Milky Way in the Northern Hemisphere, it is not an, as spectacular as it is here in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and I just remember with two, three years old, very, very, very young, when, when I was helping uh, my, my mother, at night just to you know take out the, the clothes from from the terrace and so on and, and and i was asking her wow what are those things what are those point of lights yep and, and my mother answered me well some there are stars there are also planets some of them actually are spacecraft that the humans have put into space and i said wow yep that is amazing so, and I was really, 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 really young. I was only two, three years, so I can't remember very, very well that. So when what I started to do is just, okay, uh, I would really like to know, to know more about 
stars, planets, the universe. So I started asking for books. So there was not internet at that time, so it was everything coming from books. Um, A small telescope, binoculars, of course. And also I enjoyed a lot of the the TV series, particularly Cosmos by Carl Sagan, that I knew by memory every chapter. Yes, fantastic. And then later on you went to school and finished school and then you left home and moved a few hours further south to southern Spain and got your physics degree at the University of Granada in 2000. What was the focus of your physics degree, Angel? Actually, what I did was not astrophysics. What I did was uh, theoretical physics because in that that city, in Granada, there is a very strong uh, astronomy department at the university and it is also the um, Andalusia Institute for Astronomy in that very same city. But they couldn't offer astrophysics as a physics degree. So it was just an... I did a theoretical physics. And I remember that in those times, it was a lot of about the speculation still about if they will find the Higgs boson or the gravitational wave. And I'm talking about 20 years ago, and it's time to be a bit old. So yeah, I was quite passionate about that too, particularly because I already got plenty of skills as an amateur astronomer and, and also doing a bit of outreach at the same time while I was at the university. I was actually a science communicator in a science museum there in, in Granada. And I also participated a lot in observations with different associations in southern Spain. I remember enjoying uh, observing the very famous comets that we had in 1996 and 1997. Yes. Comet yep. Hale-Bopp. Sorry, yep. the Yadukutake was first in 96 and Comet Hale-Bopp in 97. That's what I did on those times was drawing. I did a lot of drawing as sketches. I won an award in Spain for these drawings. Yep. So, so that was a very, a very nice thing. So, yeah, it was complementing very nicely what was my passion about uh, astronomy and amateur astronomy, doing real things, starting also a bit of astrophotography, drawing and doing some few exercises and collaborating with uh, observation of meteor showers or variable stars and so on. And then at the same time doing the theoretical part of trying to understand matter of the universe, all this, uh, the the quantum theory, relativity, general relativity, that it was kind of a chaotic with a lot of math inside that. So yeah, it was particularly interesting and challenging time. Fantastic. And we're going to ask you a bit later about your amateur astronomy work and also about your outreach work. But let's go down further. You travelled down off the coast of Morocco after getting your physics degree and you did your PhD at the Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias. That looks spectacular. If any of our listeners want to look up that observatory down there, it's just beautiful. What was life like down there, Angel, on the Canary Islands, and what were the observing conditions like? Canary Islands are really one of the best places in the world to enjoy astronomy, to do professional astronomy, and to do amateur astronomy, to every, everything is there, because but there are two islands in the Canaries that they actually do have astronomical observatories. One of them, it is uh, Tenerife, which is uh, bigger, the biggest island. Yep. That is actually when, where I was hosted, the Instituto of Física de Canarias, the majority of it, it is. And there is another observatory in another island, La Palma, that is where we actually have some one of the largest optical telescopes in the world. It was very famous, particularly the 4.2 meters William Herschel telescope that 
that did plenty of things in the ah. 80s, 90s. Yep. But now we actually, uh, in, uh, in that observatory, the largest optical telescope right now in, in the world, it is composed by 36 mirror and doing this kind of 10.4 meter in, in combined size. Awesome. That's huge. And, and it was a challenging, very challenging from the Spanish astronomy because it was mainly built by Spanish, but uh, the Spanish astronomers, and with a collaboration with US and Mexico. Yep. Um, and it is developing great science at the moment. So there are some few new instruments that are starting to be there, and they are going into the details of galaxies far, far away, dissecting galaxies to see how they are evolving. That telescope was built after I moved away from the Canary Islands. What I wanted to emphasize it is that perhaps when you try to talk internationally about the largest optical or the largest observatories in the world, uh, you should try to mention Hawaii with Mauna Kea, the Paranal Observatory in Chile uh, with the VLG and the new telescope, the the EELT that is going to be built there nearby, not just there, but they are very nearby, and the Canary Islands. The Canary Islands observatories are also particularly very, very important for Europeans. And also, of course, if you can add into that list Sidon Spring Observatory, particularly because of all the work that is conducted here at the Anglo-Australian Telescope with all these large surveys that I will tell you a bit more later. Yes. So you've done your PhD at La Laguna University at Tenerife in 2006, and you focused on wolf rayette stars and how they live fast and die young. So tell us about these WR stars. That was a very interesting topic that I chose for my PhD thesis because in that moment, well, I have always loved astronomy in any kind, but I was very much interested into a bit of stellar evolution with galaxies and with cosmology, so a bit of a mix of everything. And that particular topic seemed to combine the three things in some way. So wolf-rated stars, the latest stages of the most massive stars, just before they are exploding a supernova. Uh So they usually are very, very massive. So taking into account the solar metallicity, establish a solar metallicity, if if it has 25 to 30 solar masses, it will become a world-rated star. And it will live very shortly. So in total, the lifetime of this kind of stars only a couple of million of years. And the world-rated phase, it is even shorter than that. It can be only 500,000. So very, very short. But the key thing here, it is that these stars are doing like an striptease. They are just, they they have this kind of very powerful stellar winds and they are just blowing the external envelope the external atmosphere of the stars, it is going away. The speeds sometimes even larger than 2,000 or 3,000 kilometers per second. So what what you start to see there, it is the core, the very hot core of the star that is still processing material, helium into other elements, a bit uh, just before it explodes a supernova. And that very bright core, it is doing that the expanding material is excited and you actually can see what we call emission lines. So we see features that are this atmosphere in expansion. And when we use a spectroscopy to study stars and galaxies, particularly for stars, what we observe, it is just these dark absorptions 
because of the different elements. And that is the typical way we see a star. So, so we see absorption of hydrogen, helium, and then calcium, iron, just oxygen, just name it. But for world-rated stars, they're very peculiar because besides having some of these features, you also see the emission line, particularly coming from helium, very highly excited that helium had been processed inside the star, and now it is starting to go into the interstellar medium. And because of these emission lines, you actually can detect even individual world-related stars in galaxies. Yep. So you can see those features. The thing is that uh, you will observe these uh, features only in galaxies where you have massive star formation happening at the moment. So you have to have a star formation that is happening in the same moment and is still producing very massive stars because these, as I told you before, these stars are very short-lived. They die very, very quickly. So after the star formation happen, world that the stars just disappear in less than one mega year. Yep. So you've looked at these wolf rayet galaxies with large numbers of these wolf rayet stars in them. What are the features of these galaxies that make them different from other galaxies? Is it that they have a lot of stars forming in them? Or how do they interact with nearby galaxies? Okay, so the thing was that, particularly in the local universe, many, not many, many, but a large number of star-forming radios within these galaxies that sometimes they are called starburst galaxies because they are forming plenty of stars in very short time, we can detect the features of the world at stars. So what we did for my PhD was, uh, okay, let's go to observe just a sample of uh, 40, 50 of these objects, trying to get the details that we could get not only with spectroscopy, but also using uh, imaging in optical and also in near infrared and complementing when possible with other data, for example, the radio data that is going to show you the neutral gas distribution around the galaxies. Yep. And when, what I found what was the main result of my thesis was actually that the reason why these galaxies were forming that huge amount of stars in the very short times, it is because they were two galaxies, two tiny galaxies in uh -huh. interaction. <laughs> because many of these galaxies are actually dwarf galaxies. Yep. That it seems that they have not been forming stars for a lot of time, and suddenly they are experiencing this very strong starburst. Of a star formation yep. and what is the trigger what is happening there so when you have the details and you have all the information particularly the spectroscopy helps a lot because it is you, you are able to disentangle the kinematical and the chemical composition of different parts of the galaxy and then you see actually that they are different they are different objects because they have different physical and chemical properties but these things, these little tiny galaxies are so, so dim that they are very difficult to see unless you get the deep data. So in this kind of large surveys, for example, using the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, you see many of these galaxies, but you are not able to detect the, the, distar the distorted morphologies, the tidal tails, the plumes, 
or particularly if you see this kind of differences in the chemical and kinematical properties because you are op actually observing some few positions within the galaxy and not only a single galaxy. That is why it is so important to dissect galaxies at the moment. Fantastic. So your PhD was very successful and I've found more than 180 of your papers and you've been cited over 4,000 times in other people's papers and then you moved out to Australia. So tell us about your recruitment into the CSIRO and your move to Australia in 2007. Did you experience any culture shock there, Uncle? No, not really, because actually it was what I really wanted to do. So I was mentioned before that for these galaxies, for world-related galaxies, for Star Wars galaxies, many times the key point to understand and to see that uh, there are actually two objects in interaction, it is using radio astronomy. Yep. It is mapping the neutral gas, the hydrogen gas, that you do that using radio telescopes and observing at 21 centimeters, that is yes. a very particular emission of the atomic hydrogen. Yep. And when you do that, the thing is that galaxies usually have the neutral gas, the hydrogen gas of galaxies, the gas part of the galaxies, it is much more extended than what we see in optical light where the stars are. Yep. So they are usually much easier disrupted by tidal forces and by interactions. So sometimes, and that is something that actually I found later when I moved to the Australian Telescope National Facility at CSIRO, some of these galaxies that were not completely clear if they were interacting or not, when I got the interferometric H1 maps, I mean the neutral gas distribution, we found, and that was very surprising for me because I was not expecting to find this in all the galaxies I observed, that they were all having this kind of interacting features. Tidal tails, the star morphologies, independent H1 clouds, collision of two galaxies that you perfectly see that in hydrogen when you use interferometry. So that came to me, that vision of trying to observe, to, to try to use radio astronomy for my own research came to me halfway through my PhD thesis. When I came to Australia in 2003 for the General Assembly of the International Astronomical Union that was in Sydney. Yep. And that was really an open-minded thing for me. I always wanted to come to the Southern Hemisphere. I particularly wanted to come to, to Australia because of different reasons, not only astronomy and the skies, but also the, the culture and the natural parks and the beauty of your country. And I was very surprised that all these, these um, um, my colleagues at the Australian Telescope National Facility and CSIRO, they were using the Australian Telescope Compact Array Interferometer, and they were showing amazing images of galaxies with this distribution of gas. And on top of that, I also took, because in those times I wasn't sure if I would be able to come to Australia, so I took a couple of extra weeks just by myself, driving around New South Wales and visited parks, came to Sidon Spring Observatory, to Narrabri, and then I went even to Byron Bay and then following the coast back to Sydney. And I was by myself. I was completely, you know, this kind of initiatic, mag not magic, but special, in some way spiritual, but not in the sense of spiritual, connecting with yourself. Yes. Trip. So I was really hoping to try to get a 
postdoc position to do research and also get a bit of this feeling of life in Australia. And that is why I started to be in, co- in contact with uh, Pavel Koribalski, that she is uh, a radio astronomer uh, at Australian Telescope National Facility in Cairo. Ah, yes. And then we started to work together and the possibility offered itself. So I actually got the invitation to come to Australia to a postdoc just three days before I was defending my PhD thesis. So I said, of course, I will do it. And that is what I did in 2007. I moved all the way from the Canary Islands to here to Australia to start doing radio astronomy, combining with the optical and near infrared work that I have been always doing at the Canary Islands. That is fantastic. Now, between 2007 and 2010, you worked at the ATNF at Siding Spring, where we have the UK Schmidt Telescope, the Remote Eye Telescopes, the Sky Mapper Telescope, and you were support astronomer at the Attica Interferometer. What is an interferometer? The interferometer, it is in Narrabri, yep. not here. No, it ah, is not right. in Sidang Spring. In Sidang Spring, it's right, we have the UKSME, the AAT, the Remote Eye Telescope, the Sky Mapper, but the interferometer, it is 150 kilometers north from Kunabarabran. It is in Narrabri. Yep. Well, an interferometer, it is a very sophisticated facility that uses different Sunfew radio telescopes and they are observing the same uh, object at the same time. Uh, so for example, the Australian telescope compact array interferometer has six radio telescopes or six dishes, each 22 meters in diameter. Yes. And that they can be separated up to six kilometers. Yep. So what you do it is when the problem it is that using radio astronomy, we can't get high partial resolution because of the peculiarities of the light. Yep. We need separation. We need radio telescopes or of order of kilometers in order that we can match the resolution that we see in optical with the resolution you get using radio astronomy. Yes. A very nice example. The Parkes radio telescope that is 69 meters in the in diameter. Yep. If if you point at the moon with that radio telescope you will see the moon like a three pixels by three pixel size. Oh, okay. So it is very small. Yes. So if you want to get a spatial resolution in order that particularly for galaxies of two, or even in, in star forming clouds in the Milky Way, just to resolve things, you have to do this technique, which is called interferometry. Yep. That is combining the light coming from different radio telescopes that are separated some amount of kilometers. Yep. The math and the technique to do that, it is quite sophisticated and difficult. But Australia has been always a pioneer in this kind of techniques. Yes. Actually, the very first interferometers were developed here in Sydney just before the Second World using the sea as a second radio telescope and the radio telescope itself was in Dover Heights, so very close to, to Bondi Beach. And that was Ruby Pine Scott. Yep, exactly. Australia have been always pushing the technology for doing radio astronomy and doing particularly radio interferometry. So that is the good thing that you get from using this technique. Right now, Australia is involved building, as part of CSIRO, the Australian SKA Pathfinder, the ASCAP, yep. that is built in Western Australia, that is going to have 36 antennas, each one, 36 radio telescopes, each one 12 meters wide, and it is going to really change the 
way we understand the universe because of the kind of science and observation that this interferometer is going to do. Yes, the SKA is a very exciting project. Now, at the ATNF, you did some simultaneous observing in three continents at the same time. Now, what technologies did you use to do such an amazing thing, Ankal? That was fun, although now I can say, uh, I can tell that time, those two days that we were actually observing in three continents at the same time, because that was part of my research project at the moment, and still is, is doing these things. So we were using observations with the William Herschel telescope in La Palma, in the Canary Islands, at 4.2 meters. And we were also using the 8.2 meters very large telescope in Chile, in Paraná, and the Australian telescope compact array interferometer. Uh, the VLT in Chile and the William Herschel telescope in La Palma were going to get the optical part of the galaxies, the optical data, while the compact array was going to get the, the neutral gas, the radio part of the, of this of this data and I was hoping to do the three observations but we were very unlucky that the three observations were scheduled the same day the same two days yep so I couldn't go to the BLT because I was here so it was my former PhD supervisor who moved and traveled to Chile to observe uh, there from uh, these galaxies from the BLT his new PhD student that was also collaborating with me at the time was doing the observation in La, in La Palma in the Canary Islands and I was doing the observations from from narrow rise, from the uh, the ADCA interferometer. So it was a kind of fun, say, hey, what are you doing? What are you observing? Oh, you're observing exactly the same galaxy here and there in radio and in optical at the time. Fantastic. That's awesome. Now, I realize that sometimes you can't make announcements about what you're working on, but can you give us an idea of the research work you're doing at the moment at the Anglo-Australian Telescope? Well, um, I'm still trying to understand particularly galaxy evolution, but I'm much more focused in first understanding how stars are formed in the local universe, how the gas is processed within galaxies. Yes. So these galaxies are forming stars. Stars are also interacting with the galaxy in some way. So they are doing some feedback into the galaxies, releasing uh, material, new process elements, and in some way um, affecting the evolution of the galaxy itself. And that is something that we can start to do now in detail because we are developing the technology that is called integral field spectroscopy that is able to dissect galaxies yep. and get not only a spectrum of a galaxy but thousands of spectra of a particular galaxy and then you can get all the details with all the chemical information and the kinematical information and the physical information within each point of the galaxy to, as I said, dissect the galaxies and put that in perspective with the information we get in radio with the H1 gas yes. and also with information coming in the ultraviolet, particularly data from the Galax NASA NASA satellite that's observed in the, infra, in the, in the ultraviolet and combining also is possible with the infrared emission coming from a Spitzer, another NASA space telescope that is going to show you where the dust is located within galaxies. That is also very important to have it into account of all the all, all the different uh, things that are in, in a galaxy and how all combined is able to give you a much better picture of how galaxies are evolving with the time. Fantastic. So, yep. So, so here right now at the Australian, um, at the 
here right now at the Australian Astronomical Observatory and particularly at the Anglo-Australian Telescope, we have one of these uh, new technologies that is called SAMI, the ah. Sydney AAO um, Multi-IFU Spectroscopy that I think someone has been talking about that recently. Yes, Perhaps that's when true. you talk to Dr. Caroline Foster, yep. she was mentioned that. So this instrument is able to not only dissect a galaxy, but observe 13 galaxies at the same time. Wow. In the way that we, in just three years, we already have 2,000, 2,500 galaxies observed. And that is giving us the power of the statistics of dissecting, okay, why each galaxy of each particular type is doing the things that they are doing. Having this kind of large amount of number of galaxies, it is much able to get what is exactly this kind of galaxy, what, what they are doing. And we are actually pushing that a bit further because we are uh, developing even a more powerful instrument that is called Hector, that is going to be at the telescope in two years, three years time. And it's going to be doing something like SAMI, but in a step of only 13 galaxies, 15 galaxies, 100 galaxies, perhaps even 200 galaxies in four or five years time. In that way that we will be able to get high resolution spectroscopy data of perhaps even 100,000 galaxies in just six, seven years. That is awesome. How exciting that all of these technologies are being developed now. So now you also work at Macquarie University in Sydney. Do you lecture there or supervise PhD students? What is your work there at the university? I do a bit of both and actually a bit more. Uh, I do some lecturing, but it is not all the semester. Usually it is just uh, a month every semester in a particular subject. Usually introduction about astronomy and, and also a bit of galaxies. And it is a lot of fun because I really love to be with the, in, in, involved with the students and to try to, to show them how we really do things in, in, in science in, and in astronomy. And, and and yes, I also co-supervise a couple of PhD students. I'm actually looking for a new PhD student at the, at the moment to be co-supervised with a college of mine in, in Madrid. And I also participate in the science communication and outreach activities that are organized at uh, Macquarie University in, in the physics and astronomy department. And I also involve in a very important thing, which is called uh, real science, discovering real science, opening real science, that is trying to get much better involvement of scientists into schools, into primary, secondary, and high schools. Yep. So I often go into schools just to show kids what science is and what are the planets, what, try to open their mind about what science is, and also helping teachers to get material for the lectures and, and, and the, the curriculum that they have to, to give for these students. And that is something also that I like a lot to, to be doing, you know, to preparing these kind of ideas of practical short exercise that you can do also as an amateur astronomer in, in a classroom. That's awesome, Ankel. The very next question I was going to ask you was about outreach. And you were the first Spanish astronomer to host an astronomy blog. And I've had a good look at it. It's fantastic. And the Spanish readers can find the Spanish version. And the English listeners out there can find it very easily just by Googling 
the lined walk. It comes up as number one in search results. So tell us about your blogging and why is outreach so important to you? Well, just as you mentioned, the lined wolf, it is just a very bad translation from Lobo Rayado. That is the literal translation of Wolf Rayado stars into into Spanish. Yep. That, that is the name that I got, you know, some few years ago when I was starting to think about doing a, a blog, not only showing uh, what uh, a scientist of uh, astronomers is doing, uh, particularly in those times doing a PhD thesis, but also just providing information about astronomy news and discoveries and observational proposals say, hey, there is a total sol- a solar eclipse or a moon eclipse or a comet, just you have the ephemerides here, go and so on. Because in those times, and I'm talking 2003, 2004, there was not too much information in Spanish. There is now, and that is increasing, but um, in those times, it was a bit hard. So there was plenty of information in, in English, of course, but not that much in Spanish. So I started doing that. And it was interesting because I had very contradicted reviews about what I was doing because while many people were, were saying oh that is great because you're providing your your own insight of how is observing how is doing research or all the other things a pieces bits and pieces other people particularly professional astronomers and researchers were telling me you're losing your time huh. because you should not be doing science communication you should not be writing in a blog you have to be writing papers and do your <laughs> research not to science communication don't, don't write in a blog because if you write in a blog then the vision that you that the other people are going to have of you it is that you spend your time writing in a blog <laughs> and i was saying hey wait a moment <laughs> I do this in my free time. Besides that, I publish nine papers during my PhD thesis. <laughs> so don't complain about this kind of thing. And it was very funny because it was one of the reasons, particularly when I moved to Australia, to try to you know be focused more, much more in the research, even though I really wanted to do outreach because I consider it is very very, very important that I needed some few time to actually start and do these, these things in English in Australia. Yes. Because I wanted first to be known, uh, okay, that is a researcher that is doing this kind of things, combining optical and radio data in dwarf galaxies, star wars galaxies, world rotated stars, and so on. Not being, oh, that is the guy that is going doing science communication and is uh, every time writing in the blog and going and talking to the media and and doing other things, giving talks and so on. So that is why I started doing these things a bit more continuously a bit later. Yeah. If people want to follow you on Twitter, they can follow you at at L underscore Lobo underscore Rayado, R-A-Y-A-D-O. And Angel publishes lots of fantastic things on Twitter. Now, also, you're an amateur astronomer as well. Why do you do both amateur and professional astronomy? Because they are different things. Yep. They are very different. So I sometimes uh, define myself as a professional astrophysicist yep. who has a soul of an amateur astronomer. Because at the end, what I enjoy more, or the way I was involved into astronomy, science, and nature, was just using my own eyes and being alone in the dark with my amateur telescope, enjoying views of galaxies, nebula, planets, or saving the moons, or just being quiet, laying in the ground, watching the stars, observing shooting stars, and so on. And that is very different of being, you know, the professional astronomer that at the end, and I want to emphasize this, at the end, we don't look through a telescope. We are all the time in front of a computer. 
Yes. Processing data, writing papers, processing more data, trying to get an understanding of what the data are telling you. Applying it for is, grants. Yeah, applying for, of course, yeah, <laughs> how I should forget about applying <laughs> grants and applying for, for jobs and so on, because that is actually a very important part of the, of the game at the, at the moment, you know, be dealing with all these things at the same time. <laughs> so so doing amateur astronomy for me, it is kind of a liberation or coming back to why I love more about astronomy and science. And I still do that. I try to do as much as I can. Um, these days, I'm actually observing for SAMI at, uh, Austra- uh, at the Anglo-Australian Telescope yeah. and at at the same time, while the observations are going well, I'm going downstairs and I have my cameras, two cameras, and I do astrophotography and prepare time lapse that are made using amateur astronomy. And sometimes I also bring my small amateur telescope and just try to do something else. Not, not for this particular run because that, that, that bit's too much. Putting the cameras and leaving the cameras there, taking photos for two, three hours, it's, it's okay. So I try to combine both things. Fantastic. Okay, now the microphone is all yours now, Uncle, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science and in education and in astronomy. Plenty of challenges, plenty of challenges. <laughs> it is just, I actually don't know where to start. Perhaps one of the reasons why in recent times, scientists and astronomers in particular are doing much more science communication, it is because we really have to go to the public to, that, that, that they can understand why we do the things we do. Yes. And why science is important for the society. Um, there are plenty of examples, particularly coming from astronomy, because um, the CCDs that we have now in our mobile phones, they were developed basically in, another, in, sorry, in professional telescopes in, in observatories around the world in the, the last 30, 40 years. And the Wi-Fi was actually a product of radio interferometry yep. that was developed at the Australian Telescope Computer Race, the CSIRO that still have the patent of one little piece of the of the Wi-Fi. So the thing is that doing this kind of science in general, but astronomy in particular, you're pushing the technology a lot and you don't know what you are going to get. You don't know it at the moment, but perhaps in 10, 15, 20 years, those techniques that you have developed for doing just research basic research is going to have they're going to have some kind of utility in the real world as those examples that I gave you a moment ago yes that is one that is a very important part of so the society has to realize that if we invest in science if we take care of the scientific facilities not only uh, telescopes but uh, also laboratories uh, other technologies that we have in, in in the countries we are going to be richer in the future because we are going to get this uh, invention this technology that can be applied for different things and that is one part the other part it is that science open your mind open your mind a lot and helps you understand your position in your in the society in your world and in the universe and you will be able to get much better understanding or what are decisions you have to do now or the society has to do now you have this kind of scientific approach to them. So they are not uh, alternative facts, let's say. 
that yep. way. So, so science is based on the facts in things that we can measure and independent people can measure the same things and at the end getting the same results and the same outcome from there. And that is the way science is always evolving. And using this science kind of principle for many other things really will help us to fight pseudoscience that is increasing, it is increasing, and it is even worse now than it was just 10 years ago, because people are losing that connection with uh, science and technology and what that means, and prefer the easy way of understanding things with, you know, some kind of mythology, the guy that is telling you to vaccinate because it's going to be bad for you, when it is very well proven that they have done an incredible, incredible good thing for human health and the, um, the human life has been extended 20, 30 years in only half a century. So that is why science communication and we scientists have to go and talk to the people and amaze them about how we, how excited we are regarding doing science and take a bit of extra knowledge to the nature and to understand better the universe. And solve the world's problems. It will take time, but we'll get there, Angel. Thank you very much. Now, most importantly, what are your plans for your future research? Are you looking beyond Wolfriat stars at this stage, or are you going to zoom in even closer to them? No, well, actually, uh, I moved away from world the stars in a while. I still find them from time to time, of course, and I still observe this kind of galaxies. And oh, here it is again, the world-rated feature, and I can do that. No, but uh, in the last in the last few years, I have already moved more into this kind of. Uh, understanding the relationship between the gas and the stars, and for that it's very important. Uh, the surveys that we are conducting right now at the, Australian teles- at the Anglo-Australian Telescope and combining those results with a result that is going to come from the radio interferometer, the ASCAP in particular. So that is my idea for the nearby future and a bit more mid-future mid too, in, in because we are going to get so much amount of data, it's going to be huge, it's going to be difficult to digest. So try to think about techniques to do it as much as better as we can, and, and also using particular cases, particular objects that are interesting to see exactly how semi-automatic analysis or a very detailed analysis by a human being is able to provide the same results or not. So that is something that it is on my radar at the moment. And of course, continuing doing science communication outreach and talking to everyone, to kids, to students, amateur astronomers and the general public, because I insist, it's, I think it is very important we do that. Thank you very much, Angel. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you. We wish you the very best with your research and we'll probably come back and invite you back on the show in about 12 months time to find out about those recent discoveries you've made that I think might be announced in the next few weeks. So thank you very much. It's been wonderful speaking with you, Dr. Angel Lopez-Sanchez in Australia. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you very much for for having me in your in your show it has been a very it, it has been a, a pleasure and i really hope we will do it again in the future you can count on it next up we cross over to adelaide to speak with astro blogger dr ian musgrave hello 
Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. So here we are again, Ian. I think we've just got through the hottest 2016 on the planet and a very hot summer here in southeast Australia. In 90 days, something like 200 temperature records were broken. Okay. Well, let's focus now on what's up in the sky. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? Okay, well, what's not up in the sky this week is Venus. Venus has finally disappeared into the twilight, being ready for conjunction on the 25th. People in the Northern Hemisphere, they can still see Venus low in the twilight. But for us Southerners, it's now too close to the horizon. And in fact, it's setting just about civil twilight 30 minutes after the sunset. So it's no longer effectively visible from the Southern Hemisphere. Venus has been with us for many months now and we've uh, watched it grow in size and brightness and uh, those of us telescopes have watched it go from a gibbous phase to half moon to blindingly thin crescent. After the 25th, the Venus will appear in the morning sky but for the next two weeks, that bright companion of the evening is gone from our skies. Okay. Mars is lurking uh, around the horizon. It's still visible at, to at least 60 minutes after the sun sets. But Mars is not very spectacular at the moment. It's a dim red ember. And in a telescope, it's, it's uh, barely a, a, a disk unless you've got really serious scopes and those tend not to be able to go down too close to the horizon. Yep. If you look to the, the eastern horizons, you'll be able to see Jupiter rising before midnight. And in fact, now uh, re- high up above the horizon before midnight, but it's still really best in the early morning, just past midnight. But Jupiter is now uh, readily visible. And in fact, at the moment, it's paired with the bright star speaker, Alpha Virginis, the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo the Virgin. Jupiter is a, a warm, yellowy uh, glow, and speaker is bright blue-white. So it's a good excuse to stay up late and get out binoculars and perhaps even look for the moons of Jupiter as well? Oh, indeed. The moons of Jupiter will be a delight to see, actually, and there's lots of good things happening. Over the next few weeks, we'll be seeing moons uh, close to each other, moons travel in front of the face of Jupiter, moons eclipsed by Jupiter and occulted by Jupiter. And we can see a lot of interesting moon action. And this might be a good time to remind people to go to Ian's astro blog and see all the details on what to look for in Jupiter's moons. I had a look at your blog before and all of that information is up there. Yeah, all there in easily accessible form. So it's a lot easier to find when uh, something interesting is happening on Jupiter's moons. But on the 14th coming up, we'll see something very nice. The moon forms a line with Jupiter and Speaker above the eastern horizon. So pretty easy to see. Uh, After about 10 o'clock at night or around about 11 o'clock at night is probably best. If you're looking to the east, they're the brightest pair of objects above the eastern horizon. uh, Yellowy golden Jupiter and blue white Speaker. Really obvious. Fantastic. But in case you're not really convinced, on the 14th, the moon will uh, line up with Jupiter and Speaker. So Jupiter will be almost directly in between the moon and Speaker. Now on the 14th, the moon is just off full, so it won't make a really spectacular photograph if you're you're interested in uh, astrophotography. The moon will completely overwhelm the light of uh, uh, Jupiter and Speaker if you try to take a photograph of them. 
although they will look very nice indeed just with the unaided eye. So that's a, a nice thing that's coming up. One of the most beautiful planets in the sky is Saturn, although Saturn to the unaided eye is relatively unexciting. It's really bright, but you can't see any detail unless you have a reasonable telescope. However, if you're up after about 2 o'clock in the morning, anywhere between a couple of hours after midnight till an, uh, an hour and a half before the sun rises, yep. you'll be able to see a really nice sight. Uh, Saturn at the moment is reasonably uh, well easy to find. If you can find the constellations Scorpio, and if you're uh, quite familiar with the constellation Scorpio, yep. Scorpio at the moment will be uh, looks like a upside down question mark. And if you uh, look uh, at Scorpio, within the Scorpio is the uh, bright red star Antares, forming the heart of Scorpio. And if you look below Antares, in the dark lanes that form the centre of the Milky Way, you'll see a, a bright object which you wouldn't normally see there. That's Saturn. Saturn is now within the dark lanes of the Milky Way, and it's very close to a number of interesting clusters of nebula. In fact, it's about... Uh, a hand span from the Trifford and Lagoon nebulas. Yep. It's really beautiful if you're sweeping around in binoculars. Saturn, of course, will uh, look uh, uh, vaguely oval in, in binoculars, rather. It looks definitely oval in binoculars if you've got 10 by 50s. So, what's the best time and direction to look for Scorpio? The best time and direction is around 3 o'clock in the morning. And if you look directly above the eastern horizon at 3 o'clock in the morning, you'll see Scorpio curled up uh, around the, the Milky Way, uh, uh, relatively high above the horizon. And with Saturn just below it, that will look really nice indeed. Excellent. So get up early and get the binoculars out and have a look at Saturn. Yeah. Now, on the 20th, a number of interesting things happened. In Australia is the orbital equinox, and you'll see the moon forming a triangle between Antares and Saturn. Yep. Although, uh, on the next day, the moon will be, uh, on the 21st, the moon will be directly underneath Saturn, so that will look uh, rather nice. Again, if you're not too sure if that uh, reasonably bright golden object uh, in the heart of the Milky Way, below the Scorpion is actually Saturn. On the 21st, it will be directly above the moon, and so it's very easy to pick. Very good. In terms of other interesting things in the sky at the moment, uh, turning your telescope onto uh, Comet uh, 73P, uh, which rejoices in the name of, wait for this, Saxman Wasserman III, now, Comet 73P is well known. Some years back, it uh, broke up quite spectacularly. It's rising about 3 o'clock uh, in the morning, relatively low in the, in the horizon, so it will be a bit of a challenge. Okay. Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Uh, thank you for having me on, Brendan, and... May your skies be clear and uh, free of uh, dust storms. <laughs> that was Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Just Google the word Astroblog and have a look at his fabulous weekly blog that tells you what's up in the sky this week. Next up, our news roundup. 
As we've been reporting recently, astronomers are producing a phenomenal amount of data, and the challenge is to effectively extract new knowledge from that data. First up, a report via Elizabeth Finkel from Cosmos magazine. The square kilometre array will peer to the edge of the universe and generate more daily data than the world's internet traffic. Learning to filter this deluge is already triggering new tools for big data. On a flat, red Mulga plain in the outback of Western Australia, preparations are underway to build the most audacious telescope astronomers have ever dreamed of, the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA. Next-generation telescopes usually aim to double the performance of their predecessors. The Australian arm of the SKA will deliver an 168-fold leap on the best technology available today to show us the universe as never seen before. It will tune into signals emitted just a million years after the Big Bang, when the universe was a sea of hydrogen gas slowly percolating with the first galaxies. Their starlight illuminated the fledgling universe in what is referred to as the cosmic dawn. It is the last non-understood event in the history of the universe, says Stuart Waith, a theoretical astrophysicist at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Like any dream, realisation is the hard part. In 2018, when the first of 130,000 Christmas tree-like antennae is deployed on the sandy plains of Murchison, an almost uninhabited desert of 50,000 square kilometres, it will mark 28 years since its conception. Epic battles have brought the project to this point. Most famously, the six-year contest between countries to host the telescope. Australia and South Africa ended up sharing the prize. The SKA's telescope in South Africa will be built on another flat red plain, the Karoo region of the North Cape. It has somewhat less lofty ambitions. Its dishes will probe only halfway to the edge of the universe. Its moniker, SKA MID, denotes the mid-range frequencies of radio waves stretched across this distance, but it will be high resolution. Australia's SKA LOW, by contrast, will tune into the low frequencies emanating from the extremities of the cosmos. Together, the two telescopes will represent the largest science facility on the planet, says SKA Director General and Radio Astronomy Phil Diamond, who is based at Jodrell Bank Observatory in the UK. The game-changing technology that will allow us to hear the whispers of newborn stars against the cacophony of the universe doesn't involve grinding mirrors to atom-thin smoothness or constructing dishes the size of sports fields. The disruptive technology here is supercomputing. The University of Cambridge leads a consortium of 23 organisations, including Perth's ICRA, to develop new hardware and software systems for the task. The computing challenge may be huge, but it's not the first time the global community has taken on something so big. To solve CERN's problems of distributed processing and information sharing, its researchers ended up developing the World Wide Web. That changed our world forever, and we suspect the SKA will do the same. Now that was just a small excerpt from a fabulous story on the SKA by Elizabeth Finkel, the editor-in-chief of Cosmos. You can find the full article at tinyearl.com forward slash SKA Cosmos, or lowercase, all one word. Our next story is adapted from an article by Elizabeth Gibney, published in Nature magazine. 
in February 2017. Fast radio bursts bursts are astronomy's next big thing. Although still mysterious, these quirky extragalactic signals are now poised to transform mainstream research. One of the most perplexing phenomena in astronomy has come of age, the fleeting blasts of energetic cosmic radiation of unknown cause, now known as fast radio bursts, or FRBs, were first detected in 2007. The first fast radio burst to be described, the Lorimer burst, was identified from archived data recorded by the Parkes Observatory in Australia in 2001. This first FRB was... This first FRB was co-discovered by astronomer Duncan Lorimer at West Virginia University. He found in the park's archived pulsar data. He found in the park's archived pulsar data. Data, a five millisecond radio frequency burst that was so bright it couldn't be ignored. Astronomers have since seen 25 FRBs. All are brief radio signals lasting no more than a few thousandths of a second. They seem to come from sources across the sky and beyond our galaxy. Some last longer than others, and the light from a few is polarised. Since then, most known FRBs have been found in archives or previously recorded data. Then, on January 19, 2015, Astronomers at Australia's National Science Agency, the CSIRO, reported that a fast radio burst had been observed for the first time live by the Parkes Observatory. Another discovery last year caused further excitement. Astronomers reported that they had found a repeating FRB, a surprise because all the other signals had been one-off blips. Then, in January this year, Its origin was identified, a faint, distant dwarf galaxy around 780 megaparsecs. Around 2.5 billion light years away. In a star-forming region that also hums with a steady radio source. Early on, many astronomers dismissed the seemingly random bursts as little more than equipment glitches. And although key facts such as what causes them are still largely a mystery, FRBs are now accepted as a genuine class of celestial signal and have spawned a field of their own. Last month, the first major conference on FRBs was held in Aspen, Colorado. As well as celebrating a fleet of searches for the signals, the meeting's 80 delegates grappled with how best to design those hunts and pinned down the signal's origins and precise distances. About 30 radio telescopes are currently looking for FRBs, and dedicated searches are increasing. The conference buzzed with excitement about the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, known as CHIME, a fast a radio telescope in Canada that should start hunting for FRBs later this year and could see as many a dozen a day. You can read the rest of this great Elizabeth Gibney 
article online, which has been republished in Scientific American at tinyurl.com forward slash frbsearch, all lowercase, all one word. That's it for this week. See you in two weeks. Bye now. Radio Wave!